This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? Today on Welcome Home, we're going to hear from Eric Widman, a U.S. immigration lawyer and founder of Passage Immigration Law, located in Portland, Oregon. He's been practicing law for almost 20 years, so he's going to give us some information on U.S. immigration issues. His insight on the U.S. immigration categories and their limitations is definitely of interest to Canadian practitioners because we need to understand what those differences are and how we can help each other through immigration processing. And it also highlights the importance of making connections south of the border. Well, today we have with us Mr. Eric Widman, who is a U.S. immigration attorney uh, based in Portland. And uh, we just want to thank you so much, Mr. Widman, for being with us today. We know you're really busy and you're also in a different time zone. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege, and I really respect the work you're doing here. Well, thank you so much. And maybe you could just start with a little introduction of yourself. What would you like to say about yourself to our audience? Yes, I grew up in California, but escaped the Bay Area to land in Portland, Oregon. And I taught after law school in Budapest, Hungary. I taught immigration law and international law and married a Hungarian woman. So I can really relate to my clients uh, who often are marrying people from all over the world. So it's, it's giving me some credibility with them. That's interesting. That's fantastic. All right, tell, tell us a little bit about your practice. Yes. So... My wife let me start it after I was an in-house lawyer for Phillips Electronics and then built up a family-based immigration practice. We now help businesses and families navigate the immigration maze. Our headquarters are Portland, Oregon, but we're on the the West Coast. I have some Canadian immigration lawyer friends uh, as well, but we we do U.S. immigration law only uh, at our firm. Mm-hmm. And it's my understanding that for the most part, um, one of the differences between can- Canadian immigration and U.S. immigration is that for the most part, only attorneys in the U.S. are allowed to handle immigration matters. Is that correct? Yes. In general, that's the, the main requirement. There's a couple exceptions. There's someone called an accredited representative. So if you are part of a nonprofit organization and you get some training, you can be what's called an accredited rep. Or if you're a law student under the supervision of an attorney, you're able to sign forms and, and appear in court. Oh, that's interesting. So the nonprofit one that you were talking about, is that on the assumption that they would be an unpaid, like a sort of like a charitable thing or? And some people do that. Uh, I have some retired lawyer friends who are wanting to become accredited reps because there's such a huge need for that. But for the most part, they are paid paralegals, uh, higher level, uh, almost almost like an attorney. And they they are full-time employees at, at many great nonprofits like Catholic Charities or Lutheran Community Services. Oh, that's really interesting. And you 
You also mentioned a few minutes ago that you, you do have some Canadian uh, immigration lawyer friends. And I'm wondering, like, do, um, as a business practice, do you maintain relationships with representatives in Canada? Yes, yes. And shout out to Evelyn Aka, who's a friend. And she does Canadian immigration law, obviously, but she comes down and has U.S.-based clients. I think that's a, a great strategy. And she helps U.S. companies move to the U.S., uh, so it's a great way to refer people to one another because so many companies, as you know, are transnational and they have needs in both parts of the of North America. Right. I often hear about the H1 cap and I know H1 cap, H1B cap season just recently kind of closed or is about to close. And uh, if you could tell us about that, because I do find that I get calls from U.S. companies saying, well, we don't know if someone will make it in the cap. And so we want to look at Canada as an alternative to that. What does that mean exactly? What is that? Oh, and I, I would just add to that for the benefit of some of our listeners who might not know what H-1B is as well. Like, just take it from the scratch, very basic, and just describe how that works. Yes, definitely. So one of the main work visas in the U.S. is called an H-1B specialty occupation. So you typically have to have a bachelor's degree or specialized training, several years of experience, and you're able to apply for a limited number of these visas. And so Congress has allocated 65,000 H-1B visas per year, fiscal year starting October 1st uh, in, in the fall. And you're, you have to apply for this in the beginning of the spring. And so this there's a registration period that was rolled out. This is actually an improvement by the federal government. Everyone likes the registration period because you have to register now prior to getting selected in the lottery. And that, because the cap means there's a limited number of spots available, roughly 30% of the people who want to get an H-1B visa, only that number actually end up getting selected in the lottery and can apply. So the registration process lasts for two weeks. That just ended. And then USCIS is going to select a number, the 65,000 of these registered applicants, giving them the option to then apply for the visa. That takes a bit of time unless you do premium processing, two weeks rather than a few months. Then if they are approved, they get an H-1B visa stamp in their their passport eventually and that will allow them to work starting in the fall october 1st for this upcoming fiscal year well that must be a hunger games when that registration opens it yes and the computer crashed the computer system it's it's remarkable how much money the u.s government has put into this but little to show for it in terms of uh automation and just electronic progress if you need us to come down there and give, you know, the corporate headlock smackdown, Chantal and I are available. <laughs> or guns for hire. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's yeah. painful. Yeah, the, the amount of money that's been spent on different contractors, uh, apparently the government spent a billion dollars trying to get this electronic system up and running, but it still crashes. Oh. We would be very cheap. We'd do it for 500 mil, <laughs> for sure. Just yeah. just kidding, FBI. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, in, in Canada, we know all about uh, these uh, electronic systems that the government sets up, and they, they, for some reason, never seem to work the way they were planned to work, and it's such a headache for representatives. Yeah. Yes, and, and I'm not 
uh, tech person. So I know I know it is surprisingly tough, like the healthcare.gov debacle that the US dealt with a number of years ago, that was also difficult, but the systems are mature now. And there's the, the, the American people, my clients are, are pretty fed up with, with this because it impacts them so uh, negatively in general. Mm-hmm. Well, you just had a problem with electronic stuff recently too, Catherine. Oh, yes. Oh, it, It's a headache for us too, because more and more everything is going online and uh, it's great when the system works, but... <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you take a lot of headache medication at the time. <laughs> and Or you have things like, why is this person being approved for a visitor record when they actually are a permanent resident now. But thank you, government, for looking at this. Anyway, um, you know, I hear also one of the things about the spousal sponsorship process, which you're fully aware of. So obviously, you've got some street cred on this and some good Hungarian food on the table. I'm hopeful uh, about that. But I often hear from clients when they're applying for the U.S. under like a spousal sponsorship category. Uh, first of all, my understanding is you have a fiancé category because I do watch that on TV from time to time. Like <laughs> who doesn't love, what is it, 90-day or 60-day fiancé? Yes, 90-day fiancé. So good. It's true love every time for sure. Um, so we don't have that fiancé category. We used to historically have the fiancé category, but we got away with that. Um, but are people allowed to leave during that processing the U.S. or enter the U.S. during that processing? Because I hear all these rumors about being able to travel or not. Could you kind of give us, um, first of all, let us know who can and can't be sponsored, you know, as family members? Like, do you have a common law category? Is it just fiancé, et cetera? That would be helpful. Yes, definitely. And the U.S. immigration system is incredibly confusing. So there's, uh, yes, it's it's tricky even for immigration lawyers sometimes to, to keep it all straight. But U.S. citizens are the only ones that can petition for their fiancé. And so a permanent resident, green card holder, cannot. So that person has to naturalize first and then petition for a fiancé. Also, in general, a U.S. citizen can petition for what's called an immediate relative who is a parent, a spouse, or a child uh, under 21. And there's no country caps on those immediate relative categories. But yes, the the fiance visa system, uh, the process, it involves about a year to a year and a half and a petition with USCIS, with the government. And then the 90 day period after they come in on their visa, that starts once they arrive and they have to marry the person who petitioned for them. And what's kind of funny in some ways is a couple might break up and then they meet someone else and they think, well, can I stay here and marry a different fiance? That's impossible. That's they, they've, um, it's been litigated. It's been pushed to the max. It's just not possible that that foreign national would have to leave and then get a different fiance visa. It's, it's so interesting that it takes such a long time to process the person to come into the country because most engagements, I mean, you would want to, you want to get married faster than that. Yes. And one of the big issues with the U.S. system is how inefficient it is, how much money they have, and yet they're going to raise their fees again, and how long things are taking currently to, to process. And they, they have a monopoly on, on everything, so they can take as much long, as time as they want, but it is 
remarkably slow and and that's been frustrating for so many people what kinds of fees are involved with that kind of spousal application for the government yes and well in a few months they might even double or triple in some cases so there's a right now we're writing into the government saying don't do this don't don't punish immigrants for your your inefficient system but for example the form for a fiance visa it's about $600 to file that. So, so that's not horrendous. Uh, there's it's been kind of a joke that some unsavory men, uh, not, not all of course, might file petitions for a number of women and see which ones work out, right? So uh, <laughs> first past the gate. <laughs> yes. Exactly. It's online shopping. Right. It's immigration right. shopping. We don't do that at my law firm. So that's, that's uh <laughs> But, and and again, I married a, a a woman from outside the U.S. So the the process is is difficult, it's expensive, and it's often uncertain. Yeah, I, I find that there's a significant difference in the government fees. Uh, your U.S. government fees can run, you know, for a work permit and stuff or work authorization into thousands of dollars with the government. Wow. Ours is 155 dollars canadian uh, canadian canadian <laughs> which is eh? like five cents us <laughs> and that's that's why the canadian government is welcoming so many people and you're you're dominating in the competition for talent right now so many u.s based they're currently in the u.s they get a phd and they're going to canada in instead and i understand microsoft and other big companies have right across the border they're they're building up their number of employees, their businesses, and filing fees are a big part of that. A lot of companies think it's not worth it to embark on this uncertain process and end up paying maybe $15,000, $20,000 to get someone a green card uh, or or simply work a work permit. Yeah, and for these big companies, we're not just talking about one person here and there. We're talking about hundreds, hundreds of people coming in and out all the time, right? Like these are big companies. Yes, exactly. Here in Portland, we have Nike. They have hundreds of employees on on H one Bs. Intel, of course, is a is a big employer here too. But it's the the well informed business owners who need this immigrant talent. They're pressuring Congress to make changes, but it just gets stymied year after year. The the reform we need is just not happening. You, you mentioned how the two countries are vying for talent. In Canada, do you think that, and I don't know if you find this in the U.S., in Canada, a lot of times when we're processing work permits for these companies, they'll ask us during that process, before they hire that person or onboard them, can they get permanent resident status? Can they get that you know, level of security through this process? Because that's the end goal. A, do you find that that's the end goal when people are hiring down in the U.S.? And then number two, um, do you find it's a consideration long term? Because I've heard that for you guys, you have a first come, first serve system. So, for example, whoever applies first, and if you're from China, then X number of applications from China get processed per year. So some of the countries have backlogs of decades, like a decade if you, you know, to get a green card from China, a U.S. green card if you're from China or India. 
versus if you're immigrating, let's say, from you know Hungary or Spain, it would be a lot less timing to get your green card in the U.S. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, and, and certainly the permanent resident option is a huge, hugely important factor for the potential immigrant who's going to settle down and often raise a family here. They're, they're going to want certainty that they're, they're not going to be kicked out and their kids' lives disrupted or, or their own lives. So the option to become a permanent resident is very important. But as you said, it is very limited to, a, to individuals from countries where the quota is highly impacted. So Indians, Chinese, Mexicans, Filipinos, there's a really long wait time for them to get green cards because there are per country caps. U.S. government says every year you can't have more than 7% of the new permanent residents who get green cards. Not more than 7% can be from one certain country. And so many Indians are pointing out that the, the wait time for them is 100 years for them to be able to get permanent resident. And so if they look, if they're trying to decide, do I raise my family? Do I work in Canada or the U.S.? Obviously, that's a huge positive factor for Canada. That's incredible. That's astonishing. You could award it posthumously. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I kind of feel like I'm getting closer to 100. <laughs> Felt like that when I woke up this morning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so those that's I, I'm still flabbergasted at, at that processing time. So they can be really... I mean, Canada, we had soft targets. We would never call it a quota. So I appreciate the the U.S. just laid it on the table and calls it a quota, first of all. That's kind of nice. At least you know what you're dealing with. Exactly. There's that certainty. Uh, Canada never wanted to call it a quota. We used to have something similar back back in the day. Way back, back in the day. (laughs) Yeah, I can remember uh, when parental sponsorships used to take, like, over five years, sometimes up to 10 years because the queue was so long. And I had people whose parents actually passed away while they were waiting in that queue. And it, it, that was devastating. Um, but I, I mean, at least if, if the number is crazy, like, you know, it's crazy from the outset, right? So I, I would assume that people from countries like that just might pull up stakes and decide it's not worth it, right? Like they just go somewhere else. Yes, absolutely. And, and if you talk to any of the the leaders, the human resources department of our tech companies here, they are desperate. And the U.S. is not producing enough native-born PhDs and the, the expertise. And so other countries and, and the companies there are happily employing these workers. And, and quite a few of the immigrants from these impacted countries, what's called legal immigration, they rightly complain that a lot of the press and the emphasis uh, about immigration reform doesn't address the need to give them more green cards and more stability, but the focus is often on this very politicized, undocumented uh, group of people who don't have status, the who are crossing into the U.S., either seeking asylum or they, they didn't come with a, v, a valid visa. And the political focus, and it's more contentious, obviously, is, well, what do we do with all the un- undocumented folks? But the what they consider the, the, the terminology is so loaded, right? But the, the legal immigration uh, crowd is understandably wanting for 
political reform and, and attention given to their situation. Right. It almost seems like the undocumented issue is sort of taking the focus away from where it needs to be um, a little bit more on the economic side, right? The, the economic benefit, benefit from legal immigration and attracting, you know, top talent. Yes, yes. So it's, it's out of balance and it's so politicized these days in, in the U.S. We've got to get back to our roots as an immigrant nation and, and kind of tone down the rhetoric. And it's also one of those things where if I'm living in a country and contributing and working, contributing my tax dollars, my family's established, I'm in the neighborhood, I'm shopping at the local grocery store, etc. And yet someone who is undocumented gets status ahead of me and my family, that that would be a challenge, right? Yes. Yeah, there, there are lots of legitimate complaints and many of the new immigrants to, to the U.S. end up voting, for example, pro-build the wall or, or very, very conservative. And they often will, will point out, and perceptions vary, right? This, again, is a touchy, touchy topic. Well, I did it the, the right way. I did it the legal way. Therefore, we shouldn't be so generous to, to others who are simply crossing the border. Yeah, we, we have that phenomenon up here in Canada as well. You do get those attitudes that sometimes um, the most extreme views um, about irregular immigration uh, sometimes come from the immigrant community themselves. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting, that, that kind of phenomenon. It seems to cross the border. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, right. Well, and, and you know, our, our heads of state are discussing how to address the topic that you just mentioned, actually, and how to make meaningful change to um, address the other issues that stem from these types of things. Because obviously there are legitimate cases, and you want to be sure that those are properly managed and dealt with. And um, it becomes challenging when it's economic, economic reasons. Yes, yes. And we have, both countries, of course, have international obligations for asylum and human rights that we want and need to fulfill. But of course, you're not going to have everyone qualifying for asylum. That That's why you have a vetting process. And so the person who is simply seeking an economic improvement in their life would not qualify for that. But there's a lot of resources that go into vetting everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I know that the, the perception a lot of the time from a Canadian perspective is that the U.S. immigration laws in many ways seem a lot tougher uh, than the Canadian immigration laws. But one notable area that always, it, it still surprises me even today, is, is when it comes to criminal inadmissibility and the difference between the way that the American side looks at criminality versus the Canadian side, because our system is so strict on virtually any kind of criminal conviction, but your system works a little bit differently. Could you talk about that? Yes. And, and I think a great example is the DUI driving under intoxication issue and, and the, I'm not a Canadian immigration lawyer, obviously, but I understand it's very, very strict. Many people are prohibited if they have a DUI from, going into Canada at all to visit anyone. And the r- approach, the rule in the U.S. in general is very different. State by state, we make criminal law based on what state you're from. But 
you could have a single DUI and still get a green card, still get a visa. It doesn't rise to what's called a crime involving moral turpitude, CIMT, that's the big phrase, uh, unless it's aggravated, unless you really hurt someone. But the US, lots of people are, are having a drink or two and, and driving all over the place. In contrast, in Hungary, for example, there's zero tolerance. And I'm not sure how many places in the world enforce zero tolerance. I know Hungary does. But if you're, like you said, convicted of something that Canada brings the hammer down and it's more lenient overall in the U.S. on that issue. What, what does crime of moral turpitude actually mean? Traditionally, it's meant a really heinous crime such as murder or robbery. But U.S. immigration law includes other things in it that are not so bad, not not violent. And there's a body of common law that, that gets really detailed about that. And so if you steal something, that can be a CIMT, unless it's just a small amount, then it falls under the petty offense exception. So this area of law, crimmigration, as it's known, mm-hmm. is is really tricky. And the, the stakes are high because the rules are so complex, you might not be deportable in the U.S., for example, but if you leave the U.S. and you think you're okay, you try to come back in, you might not be admissible, and then you're effectively unable to come into the U.S. if you've been convicted of one of these complex crimes. Would a waiver fix that? In some cases, yes. Yeah, it, it, there are waivers available. They are tough to get, and... CBP officers at the border, Custom Border Protection officers, do their, it's a tough job because they're supposed to figure these things out and, and know, in addition to all the customs issues, know a lot of immigration law. These guys and ladies are not lawyers. Uh, so it's a lot, there's a lot of inconsistent application of, well, who can come in and who can't? And that's, that's a problem with the U.S. system for sure. I know when Canada... Uh allowed marijuana, small amounts of marijuana to be legalized. Uh, We found that that was a challenge for some of our corporate clients going back and forth. Uh, Because at the U.S. border, they would say, oh, have you ever been to Amsterdam? And did you ever, you know, smoke pot there or anything? And um, a lot of times people think it's legal there when really it's not legal in, in Amsterdam to smoke pot or do drugs, but there's a memorandum of understanding between the local police and the mayor there that they won't touch. They'll just kind of leave it status quo. You seem to know a lot about this, Catherine. I had a client. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about a client. (laughs) Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, and, And funny enough, this is actually how we found out. So, you know, my client was asked this and we, we didn't, really think about it that much because we thought, oh, a lot of people, uh, you know, go to Amsterdam for various reasons. Um, And this person said, yes, I was in Amsterdam. Yes, I smoked marijuana there. And then they were excluded from the USA. And then we had to research and look into it further. And surprise, surprise, that's when we found this out. So I do find that there's some cultural differences as well, because it is merit now, California, it's okay to to have marijuana, but it's not. Like, can you explain the view on marijuana? Yes, this is a tricky issue, and it gets a lot of people in trouble in the U.S., especially foreign nationals who are hoping to get a green card long term. And in, in the U.S., it's all because of our federal 
system of government because many states are now legalizing it. And so uh, a lot of people don't understand that here in Oregon, California, Washington, it's legal to, to smoke it, to buy it. And, and, but the federal government still says it's illegal. So what's the best way to navigate that? And when you're at your green card interview with USCIS at the federal government level, you've got to be 100% truthful because if you're not, obviously that's that's perjury. So I've noticed over the years that USCIS is at these interviews is not actually bringing up that question. And so they're not asking our clients, because that's a tough issue, have you smoked marijuana? And that's perhaps a more lenient way that Portland and, and Oregon's approaching it because, for example, in, in the Southern US, they're tougher on immigrants in general uh, so they, they could ask that question, but then then it opens up a can of worms. I guess it's because our government system is so different too, right? I mean, I, I think the issue that you're identifying is that you can have things that certain states of the U.S. like have declared that are legal or illegal, but federally they may be not aligned on that. I mean, that just wouldn't happen in Canada, we just have a different system. I, I can't think of an example where that would be the case. So, so basically, like for example, if someone was in, if someone was flying from Toronto to LA, they could, you know, legally have marijuana, legally use marijuana in Toronto, and then, you know, at at the at the border federally, it would be considered illegal for immigration purposes. But then when they got to Los Angeles, they could turn around and do exactly the same thing. That's weird. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's it's such a, a mess, and I'm sure there are articles in law review journals written written about this, and people could devote their career to figuring this this out. I've, in in some ways, there might be kind of a don't ask, don't tell understanding going on with. But of course, if someone has marijuana, uh, they're flying with that. That's illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's illegal here too, I think. That. No, yeah. not domestically, is it? No, not domestically, right. but but flying across the border. Yeah, they actually have to put signs at our airports to tell people, you know, as they're coming into the airport, if you're going anywhere internationally, make sure because you know some people are just naive; they just don't understand that it could be perfectly fine here, but not somewhere else. Or, or if I'm flying to California and it's legal there, right? So I've had clients in that situation because. As you mentioned, Eric, it's so tricky as an immigration lawyer to say, well, you're okay here and you're okay when you get there. In between, though, you are not okay. So don't even think about it. Don't do it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's and that type of proactive guidance is something we're we're trying to give our our clients because that the, the U.S. legal system is still incredibly harsh on controlled substance violations and waivers are really difficult to to get and people who smoked it before it was legal are still subject to prohibitions about green cards and visas. Mm -hmm. How long does it take to process a waiver request on average? These it's, it's dangerous. And and it's such a common question It's dangerous to give a, even an approximation these days, the general trend is longer and longer than it should be. But for example, six months, easy, a year in some cases, and if there's a delay of more than a year, my law firm and others are suing for delays through a mandamus lawsuit, we call it. And we're doing more of those as well because the government is so slow. And when there's an unreasonable delay for a waiver or adjudicating something, 
judges are agreeing with us and they say, yeah, that is unreasonable. Typically it's a one year period where we're waiting and that that qualifies as as a as a win and and gets approval from the judge. Is that sort of a waiver would be kind of like a temporary resident permit, like yeah. a TRP rehab? I do believe it's a it's more rehab. Does the waiver permanently overcome whatever that admissibility issue is, as long as the person yes, doesn't for, commit any further actions? Exactly. That that's right. It'll resolve that particular issue, but they cannot do it again. And and most likely, if they did, there's there's no way they would get the same amount of leniency because it's typically discretionary. And do you need to renew it or you just get it once and that's it? It's it's granted, for example, if you are trying to get a, a green card and you need a waiver to get your green card, then that issue goes away and then you you get your green card. So you don't you might have to renew your immigration status, but that waiver will will remain in place and not it, it resolves it once and for all. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything, any kind of visa application that temporarily overcomes an admissibility issue? Yes. So something called humanitarian parole is, is a good option if someone is not admissible. They're, they have a criminal issue that keeps them from getting a visa or, or a, a green card. But let's say they have a family member who's having emergency surgery in the U.S., they want to be there. They need to be there on humanitarian grounds. They can be paroled in to the U.S. So that that's an option. That's a that's a pretty good one for for many people. It's discretionary, and the processing times can can vary. But many, for example, Afghans and Ukrainians, that's the authority they've been granted into the U.S. before the Uniting for Ukraine program was was implemented. That's really interesting. I'm going to change subjects quickly here. Because uh, one of the things that I've noticed in my practice, because I coordinate with a, a U.S. team, and I also have other colleagues of mine who help out with immigration, work, U.S. immigration work, is that when it comes to uh, the work permit category, intra-company transferees, I've noticed that the U.S. process and documentation is quite heavy versus the Canadian process. Can you tell us, just very high level in, in general, you know, what kinds of documents would be included in that? Yes. The L intercompany transfer visa is very tricky to get through uh, and get approved. As you said, there are a huge number of documentation requirements, and there's a high a level of, of rejections for these two. But the ownership of the, the entities matters a lot. The amount of time that the employee has worked outside the U.S. matters a huge amount, and that all has to be documented. And so there's the the L1A for the executives, the higher level manager types. There's also an L1B for specialized knowledge workers. And so you have to show that this person has specialized knowledge and lots of proof goes into that. And keep in mind, too, that longer term, if that person wants a, a green card, from the very beginning, you've got to set them out in the right path, whether it'll be a L1A or an L1B. And if you go down the wrong path, you that can have a big negative consequence for the long term. That person can't get a green card unless they, unless they jump through a lot of hoops. 
So yes, the the requirements for this are pretty onerous. So what you're saying is some work types of work permits or work authorizations in the U.S. You a person can work there for you know four, five, six years, and that category doesn't get them towards green card status. Is that correct? The usually uh, quite often it can, but for example, we had a client who was a specialized knowledge worker but was not able to use what's called the EB1 category, employment-based first preference category. And so that was that was resulting in a much longer wait time for that person. And if from the very beginning, we had, if we had directed the case from the beginning and they hadn't just come to us later, they would be better positioned for a faster green card process because this person then had to go through an EB3 perm process, which was very lengthy and more expensive for the employer. So it is it is one of the most complex areas of immigration law and in huge need of reform and improvement. So setting it up properly from the get-go and thinking long-term is important. And that's, that's interesting. That's a little bit of a difference because in Canada... Uh, generally speaking, a lot of the work permits can lead you towards, you can work towards that permanent resident status. So Yes. And as a further example of that, there are a couple of visas that are known as dual intent. So that L as in Lawrence, intercompany transfer visa, that's one of them that allows you to get a green card. The H-1B is a nice pathway to a green card, but others like a TN or an E investor visa don't allow for dual intent in general and make it difficult for someone to get a green card without first transferring to a different status. Interesting. That's quite a significant difference between our two countries. Yes. And the starting point for the the visa is really important because you get down one pathway, it's really tough to regroup and, and make up that lost time. I would imagine... I mean, I find for myself, sorry, I'm switching topics here. I I find for myself that it's always really good to maintain professional relationships with people on the other side of the border that are doing similar work. Uh, So we we touched on this earlier, and you mentioned that, yes, you do have a couple of Canadian immigration lawyers that you may call on. Um, I, I keep those relationships as well with several U.S. lawyers that have different, you know, subspecializations. So, um, if, uh, it, if there were someone out there like a, an immigration consultant or a Canadian immigration lawyer that doesn't know anyone in the U.S., um, how would they be able to reach out to you, for example, to you know consider maybe some kind of a professional tie-up or cooperation? Right. Yeah. Thank you. And we, I founded Passage Immigration Law, so you could you could search us up that way. We're at passage.law, and we have offices on the. The, the West Coast, but also have clients. I love practicing immigration law because we have clients all over the place. And international connections, Canada, Mexico, and otherwise, I just I love the network that's out there. And myself and other ALA attorneys, American Immigration Lawyers Association, it's a, a group of vetted, uh, a, a good group of people who are a, a resource. And ALA has a list of attorneys. Like if you wanted someone, if you have a client in Nebraska, who wants someone, a lawyer in Nebraska, that ALA list is great too. 
but but I'm happy to be helpful to your listeners and point them in that direction if they want to contact us. Mm-hmm. So your website is passage.law, correct? Yes. Right. Um, well, we're getting a little um, short on time here, but is there anything uh, that you would like to say to our listeners from your perspective, uh, anything important or any kind of overarching message? I think whenever someone has a chance to live abroad and work abroad, they should seize that opportunity. That completely transformed my life. And that I think is really crucial for the, the future of civilization that we get to know each other, that we get to understand each other and recognize, sure, there are differences, but that's what makes things interesting. It's like eat different types of food, uh, get to know different people with different perspectives. So I think the more we can do that, uh, and, and even if it's inconvenient for career, your career, your enlightened bosses will understand that working abroad in Europe or Africa is great for you. Thank you so much, Eric Widman from Passage Immigration Law. You have given us a really fantastic comparative analysis between some U.S. categories in Canada, and we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on, on that today with us. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Need a concise guide on all practical and procedural aspects of Canadian immigration law? How about a contemporary resource that examines the fundamental avenues, requirements, and remedies for immigration? Have you heard about Iman's immigration law series? Well, duh, I think so because we're the general editors. Yeah, it's true. Catherine Swicky and Chantelle Delage are the general editors, and Iman's practical and contemporary series offers you a clear, concise, balance guide on the most challenging areas of immigration practice. Literally the only time in our lives that anyone has called us balanced. <laughs> Learn more about Iman's Immigration Law Series at iman.ca forward slash ILS. Things I wish I knew. Things I wish I knew. I, I guess um, when I was starting out as a lawyer, one thing I wish that somebody had taught me was how to properly manage the 24 hours that I have in my day. Um, time management is a big topic that people kind of talk about it loosely, but I think in the context of immigration law, the volume of communication is it, it's staggering. And if, if you don't manage... Um, you know, your email inbox and your voicemail inbox, you could very easily end up spending your entire workday just replying to emails and you would never actually get to any substantive work. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing that has worked for me really well is that I, I'm very rigid about my calendar and this doesn't work for everyone. I don't know, Catherine, you may have a different technique, but my calendar is diarized like every moment of my workday from the moment I get there until the moment I leave so that I know when I should be spending time on priority tasks and I don't look at my email while I'm doing that work. If I have 10 minutes in between, like I finish something in 45 minutes when I thought it would be an hour, then I go back and I spend 15 minutes on emails. But I, I probably get about 200 emails a day. Even if I spent one minute every day answering every single one of them, that would take up like you know, good chunk of my day. Yeah, we don't we don't do math, we do law. So I wouldn't know how many th of the 36 hours in the day that would take up, but yeah. yeah right, what's 200 divided by one? <laughs> <laughs> 
it's interesting because I have that problem too. Uh, I'm much better at it now, but I do still find it to be top of mind because I need a good chunk of time to do the substantive work. I like to get in, research the updates, policies. Are there any, you know, new things on the particular subject matter that I'm about to submit or application forms are constantly changing. And I just find that in order for me to really dig into a client file to make sure it's perfect before it gets submitted, I need a good chunk of time. And I find during my day, much like you, those emails, because clients want that response quick, 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 quick. And and there's always that one or two client that they'll email you, then they'll call you to ask why you haven't responded to their email that they sent 15 minutes ago. And then they'll email you after they've left the voicemail to say, why didn't you return my voicemail message that I left you? (laughs) And it, it becomes really burdensome. So that time management piece, I book the substantive pieces in my calendar. Mm-hmm. And then anything else around that is open for email responses. And there are sometimes where I've learned to respond to a client where it's not an urgent matter. I can get back to them, let's say, next week. And I'll email and say, we will respond by next Wednesday or in approximately a week. We thank you for your understanding. Uh, I try and manage it that way. What I do find also challenging with respect to time management is doing the social media doing the marketing, uh, doing the bookkeeping pieces. And that's where I think having uh, individuals that you either hire or get on board, you know, as contractors to help you out. Because when you're, you're looking at the context of your day, it's better for me to do the work and get it out the door because it's billable versus managing my social media well it's it's focusing on what you're good at too right I mean like I know that there are certain things I'm just not good at it so I'm gonna just farm that out to somebody else and you know focus on my billable work it's a much better use of my time and it's much more profitable use of my time absolutely the uh the other thing that I like to do is set up boundaries in terms of communications uh earlier in the relationship with the client so I have an auto reply on my email that says thank you. I received it. Okay. So that avoids the client who calls five minutes later, wondering if you got their email. I say, thank you. I received it. Please allow two business days for standard communications, right? All right. If it's an emergency, then whatever, but you know, that way it just sets up like an expectation that no, I'm not going to answer you in 10 minutes if it's not an emergency. But Chantel, the email I got from you said, I'll call you next year. (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) Things I wish I knew. What are the differences between criminal and serious criminal inadmissibility? I don't know, Chantal. Maybe about three drinks? Also understand the hurdles to overcoming medical inadmissibility. Learn all you need to know in Inadmissibility and Remedies, the third volume in Iman's newly minted immigration law series. This concise and contemporary text will guide you through the process, procedure, and strategic elements involved in helping a client overcome claims of inadmissibility, making this an indispensable resource for immigration consultants and all immigration practitioners. Get your copy today by visiting emond.ca forward slash IR and enter promo code IR10 for 10% off.
We would like to extend our thanks to Mr. Eric Widman, the U.S. immigration attorney who has joined us today, to give us some insights about U.S. immigration and how it compares to our Canadian system. We really appreciated all your insights, Mr. Widman, and thank you so much for joining us. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Dana Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emon.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925, extension 227. My name is Dana Hawes, and I'm the senior publisher at Emon Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content including our Immigration Law Series, edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our Emond Exam Prep ICCRC practice exams, and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. Emond is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.